Let's talk about digital identity, the podcast connecting identity and business. I am your host, Oscar Santolaya. Hello, and thank you for joining us on a new episode of Let's Talk About the Digital Identity. And I'm super happy to bring a former guest back. She was coming for the second time. One of the reasons is that there has been released a super interesting result on our research, especially in a vast country like Canada. So our guest today is Joni Brennan. She is the president of the Digital ID and Authentication Council of Canada. Dayak, building on more than 15 years of experience in identity and access management, innovation, adoption, and industry standards development, Johnny helps the Dayak to fulfill its vision by delivering the resources needed to establish a digital identity ecosystem that accelerates the digital economy, grows Canada's GDP, and benefits all Canadians. Johnny builds diplomatic and impactful relationships and formalizes strategic partnerships. She has participated in influential committees from organizations including SEC Data Governance Initiative, OECD, the IEEE, OASIS, the ISO, among others. Hello, Johnny. Hello, Oscar. Great to be back. Yes, welcome back. Super nice having you. So again, we are here to talk about digital identity even though some of our listeners might have heard you before, I think four years back, please tell us about yourself and this journey that you have to the world of identity. Yeah, well, thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, in terms of my personal journey in the world of digital identity, I think it's been, uh, yeah, just a bit over 20 years now working in this space and really starting in the and all of this career in the nonprofit sector, working with private sector and public sector, helping to develop standards and frameworks, and particularly focusing on risk management frameworks now that help to contextualize the way that standards and open source have been implemented to help to manage risks and help decision makers and adopters to make better decisions about which kinds of solutions they would like to adopt. So it certainly has been a journey moving from classic identity federation and single sign-on now to Web3 and distributed ecosystems. So uh, there are some things that have changed, but then there are also some core foundational concepts and thematics that have stayed the same. It's great to be here to discuss the topics with you today. Fantastic. As I said, one of the main reasons to discuss is that there is a very interesting report. Actually, I have it here in front of me. It's uh, titled Canadian Digital Identity Research 2022. Of course, I'm sure it has taken a few years to gather and process all this information. It's a very nicely designed document. And also many of those findings were like, wow, hmm, super interesting how things are going in Canada. And I'm sure some of these find it will be similar in some other countries as well. So we'd like to hear more deeply a few of these findings and what we can learn. If we start telling us some of these key findings from these reports. Yeah, thanks so much. I find the research to be interesting as well. The research we've developed four consecutive years now of research. And so the latest report is the data from 2022. So some things that are interesting about that as well is that we began 
to perform this research before COVID happened, during COVID, and now arguably I would say post-COVID or the next phase. So it's been interesting to see both kind of how the space has developed and how people's perceptions have developed over that period of time. One of the reasons that we've done this research is that we found that in the Canadian ecosystem, there wasn't this kind of perspectives research. We spend a lot of time working together as practitioners, whether we're working with policy, technology, or business processes, we're often speaking with practitioners that are in the space. So to have the opportunity to better understand and quantify the perspectives of people who may not be practitioners, maybe they do understand the space, maybe a little bit, maybe not so much. So to have the ability to have a better perspective on what people are thinking about the work that we're doing, this is very valuable. And of course, putting people at the center of the work that we do is a priority. So having these perspectives is quite important. Because we've done this research annually over the course of four years, what we have done as well is we've asked some questions each year to have baseline, to have trend lines, to know how has a perception changed year over year over the course of four years, or maybe that perception has not changed. Maybe it stayed the same over the course of four years. So we've seen that timeline. That's been an interesting feature. And then each year we have also customized some of the questions so that we could ask questions of the participants that were maybe more specific to what was happening in the world at that time. So I think it's a great opportunity to see what people are thinking, both at a point in time and in over time. Now, how did we perform the research? Well, the research has been developed through a third-party research firm. So they manage the sample, the participation sample, to make sure that it has diversity and that it's really asking questions to Canadians across our country from one side to the other, as well as we have two official languages in Canada, French and English. So as well as making sure both official languages have been consulted. So we've had some regional findings as well as we've gone forward. So with that, maybe I'll share some of the key findings from the survey. Okay. So what I would say is that when we started this survey four years ago, this research, we asked people, first of all, do they understand the words digital identity? And I can say that for the first three years, people did not, less than half, felt that they had someone understanding of the words digital identity. So without assistance, they could produce a kind of a definition of digital identity. Now, last year, the fourth year of our research, for the first time, we've seen more than 50% feel that they have some understanding of digital identity without being assisted. So while the findings, I would say, are arguably low, meaning less than 50% had some understanding for years one, two, and three, there is a sign that education and knowledge and awareness has been growing over each year, now with just over half understanding. So that's a good trend line, meaning that education and awareness has grown. So I think that's interesting. It also helps us to know what kind of language we should be using when we're speaking with people, what they might understand or where more education. Now this year, we also, for in 2022, we also asked people, what was their perception of the impact that digital identity could have on their lives? And I think positive news, the impact, more than 55% of respondents felt that digital identity had a positive impact on their lives. 
And really, this was to manage records, to be able to have electronic boarding passes, things that were really around convenience and doing business anywhere and everywhere. So this is great news. So people feel that there's a positive impact more than half. Now, that said, 23% do remain unsure about the type of impact that digital identity has on their life. And so now we see that the 23%, this is a group that we need to focus on. So they don't know if digital identity will help them or if it will harm them. So there we see, okay, this is a place where we can educate that 23% on what are the privacy impacts? What are the security impacts regarding digital identity and how can that improve their lives for the better? So that's a place to spend some time for education. Now, the remainder felt that digital identity had a negative impact on their lives. And we do know, of course, people are free to have perceptions, positive, unsure, negative, as they so choose. But we do know as well in the Canadian ecosystem, there has been quite a bit of misinformation and disinformation, malinformation, and primarily that type of information is moving in what I would call unauthenticated spaces. So Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, places where information can become viral and sometimes that information isn't verified. Sometimes it's being spread by mistake and sometimes it's being spread with bad intent. So we know that that's been a challenge in the Canadian ecosystem, and that may be part of the group that feels a negative impact in their lives. So our focus will be on the 23% to help them to better understand the space so that they can make better decisions about their perception of the type of impact that digital identity can have on their life. Now, we have also seen year over year for four years, we've collected some demographic information about the types of people who are responding and the types of people who are most interested and feeling the benefits most and most interested to use digital identity or most interested to also learn more digital identity. And year over year, the people who are most interested and most looking forward to the benefits that digital identity brings are what we call the caretakers. So the caretakers tend to be parents who are taking care of children in the home or dependents in their home. So this could also be senior caretakers, whether they're in the home or outside of the home. So these are people who are taking care, really caregiving in all aspects of their life, as well as taking care of themselves. So these people have the most interest to use digital identity to help to manage their care. So primarily tracking healthcare records, and school and government registrations, for example, these were seen as the primary benefits. And these are the people who are most feeling pressure to manage data, to manage access to data, and really need that extra help that these type of technologies can provide people, the conveniences and the security that can provide people in their life. These are the people that I think is a great area of focus for the work that we do. Caregivers are also workers. Caregivers are also students. And so in all aspects of their life, they feel that this is something that can help. In the Canadian ecosystem as well, we do have some what I would call paradoxes, meaning we do also each year, year over year, ask people their willingness to share personal information online if it makes their life more convenient. And what we've seen over time is there has been a slight rise 
in people's willingness to share their personal information. And so, for example, in 2021, 75% were willing to share information, personal information for convenience. That went up to 78% in 2022, being willing to share personal information if it meant that they would have more convenience in their lives. Now, that said, again, paradoxically, the same amount of people, just around 75%, between 73 and 75%, are also having the highest concerns about personal information being compromised. So yes, while people are willing to share information for their convenience, they're equally concerned about their information being compromised through identity theft or through hacking and through other means. And so we need to be aware that People are both feeling the desire for convenience, but they're also very concerned along the way. So when we think about that 23%, again, who are unsure about digital identity, we can help them to better understand where digital identity can help people to manage their information and get convenience while protecting themselves online. I would say that this is a paradox, but also something that we can help and we can support by working together with more education. Now, year over year, for four years, we have also asked people about their preferences regarding the way forward on digital identity. So what we've asked them is basically three options. Would people prefer public sector and private sector to work together on a framework, on an approach, a collaborative approach of public sector and private sector? We've also asked them, would they prefer government to move alone and take the lead? Or would they prefer private sector to move alone and take the lead? And I can say that year over year, and in fact, we've seen growth to 71% of respondents. They believe that collaboration is the best way forward of the public and private sector. And their thoughts on that for why is because they felt that public sector and private sector by working together would have more checks and balances on each other to make sure that each was behaving with the best interests of the client, the customer, the citizen. They really like that collaborative approach. And that's grown over time up to 71% in the last year. Now, typically year over year, the people who prefer only government to take the lead or only private sector to take the lead has been a bit of a split, tends to be around 17% wanting one or the other to go the pathway alone. And in this year, this last year, we actually saw a little bit of a change in that research where for the first time, the preference for public sector versus private sector, there was a little bit of a lower preference this last year for public sector to go alone. So the finding was 12% prefer the government only to take the lead with 17% preferring that private sector only take the lead. And I think this is actually, if people have reviewed the Edelman's trust barometer and trust overall as a trend globally in the public, there does seem to be a erosion of trust in large institutions and in new technologies as well, we should say. So seeing the trust in government a bit lower this last year, I think maps as well with the global trending lines that we've seen in the Edelman trust barometer research as well. So not entirely surprising and common with what we've seen around the world. Now, unsurprisingly, we've also, since as we started, we've done this research before COVID, during COVID, and now post-COVID ecosystem. And while we were in the middle of the pandemic challenges, we asked people if the requirements of the pandemic made people feel that it was more important 
for them to have access to digital identity that was secure and trusted and privacy enhancing. And people felt absolutely 66%, 67% over the two years that we asked that question. People felt, yes, COVID was driving a need for that secure and privacy enhancing digital identity capabilities. So of course, we think about working from home and social distancing. So people absolutely connected the benefits of digital identity with the things that we were going through at the time. We also have asked some questions and I'll share actually what I think is one of my favorite findings right now. And then we'll talk a little bit more about some specific capabilities. But I think for me, my favorite finding over the last two years has been we asked people, do they want to have access to personal information that's issued and collected about them by public sector and private sector? And do they want the ability to use that information? So we've asked that question for two years now. And actually, we've seen the highest numbers we've ever seen on our research over four years regarding this question. And so people responded overwhelmingly, 92% that they want to know and have access to data that's issued and collected by our federal government and by our provincial, our jurisdictional governments in Canada. And so what this says to me is that while the words digital identity are challenging for people to understand what exactly does this mean, when we ask people do they want personal data control and transparency, Right away, without a lot of education, very high number, 92% want to have access and control to personal data. That was followed very closely by 87%. So they wanted that same access and control, 87% of data that's collected by the private sector. So I think, again, right away, emotionally, people understand personal data control. It's something they demand no matter what their background, their culture, their politics, their region. Everyone wants to have transparency and control to data about themselves. So I, I think that's just a fantastic finding. And rarely have we ever seen, in fact, never have we seen numbers that high in our research. Now, I shared this finding because I think it very much sets up some specific capability finding around digital wallets, something that's an emerging space. So whether we're thinking about the concept of the digital wallet or a trusted container of some sort. Over the last two years, we've asked questions specifically about digital wallets, concepts around digital wallets to work. There's a degree of personal information sharing and personal information control that has to happen. So that's why I wanted to set that up with that primary finding. So over the course of the last two years, we have seen the familiarity of the concept, what is a digital wallet? We've seen that rise. And so the first year that we asked it was 54%, and it's actually gone up to 59% in the last year of the research. So people are understanding the concept of the digital wallet, what it is, what it means, and why it's important to them. When we've asked people about their use of digital wallets in 2021, we saw around 38% of people reported that they were using some kind of digital wallet. And that rose to 41% in 2022 of respondents saying that they were actually using digital wallets. And so of those digital wallets, the highest usage reported was of the Apple wallet. And so in 2022, roughly a quarter, 24% were using the Apple wallet with the remainder of the usages on wallets being spread. Samsung Pay was the next highest and then third-party wallet providers after that. Why are people using digital wallets? They really like contactless payment, less clutter, 
and less concerned about losing their cards, their plastic or physical cards. They feel that these are the benefits of using a digital wallet. So again, setting up this ecosystem for personal data control. So whether it's the type of wallet that we might be familiar with on the phone or some kind of trusted container or network, this all requires the ability to share information and to have data control. This is something that people are demanding without a lot of education. So all in all for the audience, I would say is be aware that your customers and your clients, they may be challenged to understand what those words digital identity means. They may have different ideas among them, what the words digital identity means. And so there's some education that can be done likely with your audience. And particularly for us, for our ecosystem, again, we're focusing on that 23% and really educating them about the privacy and the security protection that can be found, that can be achieved by using digital identity capabilities. And so that's the place that we'll focus as we continue to move forward in our ecosystem in Canada. And I think it's reasonable to say that it's probably a similar finding around the world. We might see some differences for countries that are a bit more advanced, but I do think we're going to find some commonality in each region around the world. And even within our customers, whether we're thinking about their personal lives and their personal transactions or the way that they manage their data at work, or at school, I think these findings are very valuable, no matter kind of what the lens or the ecosystem that we're looking at. So hopefully the audience will find that information helpful. Indeed, quite revealing many of the very useful facts that you have just shared with us. Actually, one of the first one, the understanding or awareness of the concept itself of digital identity is quite revealing that you have evidence that it has grown. So people are understanding more, the concept is getting more familiar. So I don't know how you ask them, but I guess you ask them to elaborate, right? So you understand what is digital identity and people have to elaborate in their own words. We just ask them, what do you think digital identity is? So we ask them to try to produce a definition, the, the research asks them. And then we measure, were they very confident? Were they able? Was their definition accurate? Or were they not confident and did they need some help? And so at that point in the research, depending on their ability to answer the question about what they believe digital identity is, there would then be a degree of assistance. If they weren't sure, they'd be provided with a definition so that they could then move forward in the rest of the research with a common understanding as they answered more questions going forward. Mm -hmm. Very well done. And the other thing you mentioned, one paradox, so people are more willing to use the digital identity solutions, but at the same time are more concerned about the privacy issues or protecting their data. So that's also very interesting. It's good in both senses because yeah, people are using more the tools, but at the same time, consciousness is increasing. Yeah, and I think for me at least, I think that this finding really is part of a call to action to say identity management practitioners who are working together to identify the risks, to mitigate the risks, to provide better solutions for citizens, clients, customers, and residents. We really are responsible to move forward together in this space in a way that's designed around people, their benefits, managing their risks and their needs. Because without the work that we're doing, they're going to take part anyway. Maybe they're going to take pictures of their driver's license and send these an email. And I know I have. <laughs> You're not supposed to do this. But sometimes when you need to get to what you need to get to on the other side of the transaction, you do what you have to do, right? So I think we've all been there. And so I think this is a call to action for us 
to continue to work together to um, provide people with the options so that they can do what they need to do in a safe and secure way. Yeah, absolutely. In Canada, there's a, you mentioned public sector, which in Canada, actually, there are like two tiers of public sector, right? The provincial and the federal government. So uh, I understand that each of them makes their own solutions. And there is the private sector. So there are like, let's say, three main developers or creators of data identity solutions. So have you found solutions that were not properly designed and what was the effect of those? In the Canadian ecosystem, we do have jurisdictional governments. We have our federal government, which is a collaborative, all of us working together. And then we have provincial governments and territorial governments, as well then, of course, as municipalities. So we have um, the different layers of the governments, and then we have the different private sector industries. And some of those industries are federally regulated, like finance, and some are not. So what makes that space interesting as well is that when it comes to your legal instantiation for who you are, this is really spread out in Canada. And so if you're born in Canada, your legal instantiation for who you are is with your jurisdiction where you were born. If you immigrated to Canada, your legal root of your identity sits with the federal government. So really, the federal government is, in fact, a very large customer of digital credentials or digital verification, unless you've immigrated. But if you've not immigrated, like the majority of Canadians, then the federal government is a customer there to know who you are. So there does need to be a collaborative. And I would say that both in the public sector and in the private sector, it's very important to focus on all of the elements, trust and risk management, convenience of use. And if solutions are poorly designed, then it leaves people not happy with the experience and not trusting the experience. And so whether we're using a solution from public sector or private sector, it's also very important to do the user testing and the alpha testing and the launch to see how were people experiencing this service? Were they able to produce the information that they needed to produce to take part in this service? Because that user experience, we only have a small opportunity to create a delightful, secure experience with the people that are using the services. So poor design, or in fact, it may be great design from a technical perspective, but without doing that user experience testing and finding that people's, their emotion and how they felt while they were using the service wasn't there, that can lead to a low adoption, low trust. And people will feel that and they will sense that and maybe they don't come back to the solution again or maybe they feel oh this was terrible and they tell other people so yeah I think it can't be stressed enough that as you're designing public and private sector to really work with you know your small set of users to see how are they experiencing the solution in addition to of course the priorities making sure that it's safe and secure and using data minimization and all of those techniques that we would want to use for a privacy-enhancing service. Yes, and related to that, I'm checking now the picture in which I can see that the, say, the majority of Canadians believe that both government and private companies should work together to create a digital ID framework. And I can see in the three years where this survey has been executed, it keeps growing. That's the, the feeling of the public that, yeah, the collaboration needs to be strong. So. How is that resonating with the ones who create the digital services? 
it is an interesting finding, right? And I do think it's interesting too how people seem to hold the governments a little bit more accountable, the higher percent. So they 91, 92%, they want that access to that data. I was in fact surprised that it's a little bit lower expectation for the private sector around 87%, still close, but a little bit lower. And I think what that means is something that we all experience ourselves as well. We're one person, no matter what, you know, in our lives, we, Oscar is Oscar and Joni is Joni. Sometimes our person is working is in school. Sometimes we're a patient with our doctor. So we have these different experiences within our lives. We are the center of all of them. Us being at the center is the priority to making sure that as we move through these different solutions and services, we are the constant and we can then use data and present data as we're moving through those contexts of the type of transaction that we're trying to provide. And so while, let's say, for example, Quite often, we're asked to show a government-issued ID. Now, we know that we need to be able to authenticate. We need to have a verified identity, and we need to be able to authenticate in a verified way to government to say, okay, this is data about us, and we want to use that data. Yes, but quite often, we don't log into government necessarily maybe every day. Maybe if we're at a certain phase in our life or a certain time of the year, yes, we do authenticate to government. But more often than not, we're using that government-issued data, that government-issued credential to open a bank account or to go onto an airplane or check into a hotel. So the areas where the data about us that has different levels of verification, whether that's our driver's license, which for us is a provincial or territorial credential, or a passport, which is a federal credential, or maybe something like a verified address for the bank that we've been banking with over the last five or 10 years. Where it becomes very interesting is, again, the constant in all of those equations is that there's one person at the center of them. And so having that collaborative, it's very important to bridge the gap to not only are you as a government solving the primary use case that is your most priority, maybe it's how do I authenticate to government, or you as a bank are solving your use case, how do I authenticate you to access your financial information? Really, people need to traverse across both of those contexts and across many different contexts. So collaboration is the way forward and people do get that sense. And as you said, that desire for collaboration has really grown over time. Okay, excellent. So you have been, um, let's say, perceiving that I'm sure you talk very often with people from all the governments plus people from the private sector then in the context. So that's something you are already perceiving. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, each group of stakeholders, if it's a good government or like finance or credit networks or other, each group has their priority use cases. And one of the things that we look at in our ecosystem in the DIAC is What are those common use cases? We're most concerned with really where those ecosystems work together, where we're using government-issued credentials to open a bank account, for example. That's a great use case because the financial institutions want to lower their know-your-customer any money laundering costs. We bring these types of government credentials into a physical bank all the time. So how can people use those credentials digitally? And how can each party be sure that the right level of risk is managed. And that's where we focus in DIAC. And so for us, 
use cases that center on know your customer and any money laundering. They're very powerful use cases. There is a global framework on know your customer and any money laundering. And this is a place where we always see collaboration between public and private sector as an important feature. That's one of the areas where we see a lot of commonality, for example, not the only area, but definitely one of the areas where um, that commonality exists. Yeah, this research is super fascinating indeed. I will ask you a final question for all business leaders that are listening to us now. What is the one actionable idea that they should write on their agendas today? I would say that this research should be used as an additive tool. It's all available. And so if you're an English speaker or French speaker, it's available in our website, diacc.ca, diac.ca. I would also say that one of the things that we focus on within the DIAC is we are not developing the technical standards or the technical open source code for the methodology for how to move forward. What we've developed is a very high level and prescriptive risk management framework. And so one of the things that we see in our ecosystem is that a single solution that is one size fits all doesn't map to the ecosystem, really. Ecosystems are living things, and sometimes there's more security needed, sometimes less. There are different conditions. So I would say for one activity for people, business leaders who are listening today, is to try to evaluate your risk. Maybe you already have. Evaluate the types of risk that you have within your ecosystem. And then Look at something like our Pan-Canadian Trust Framework or Risk Management Framework to determine, be sure that you are managing the risks that need to be managed to ensure that there is a duty of care that is set out. How do your customers expect to be cared for? How do your partners expect to be cared for when they're interacting with a solution or service? And then make sure you're mitigating those risks. And we provide one tool, the Pan-Canadian Trust Framework, as a tool to help people measure and make sure that they're mitigating risks in a verifiable way. And this helps decision makers to then adopt solutions today while looking forward to knowing where and how these solutions might interact. Should I interact with another ecosystem? Are they managing risk in the same way that I am? Whereas the technical solution for do I need to transform this data model? The software engineers, I have all the confidence in software engineers to solve how do we transform from one data model to another. And using tools like risk management frameworks like the Pan-Canadian Trust Framework can help you to know should you be looking at how you interact with different sets of credentials or different solutions, different ecosystems. So know your risk, manage your risk, do your duty to care for your customers, clients, citizens, and residents. And the rest of the ecosystem will evolve as it does and will continue to work together to make sure that people are at the center, privacy is enhanced, and that people have transparency and control in this uh, evolving and emerging digital ecosystem. Excellent. And for our listeners, yeah, we're going to put in the show notes the links to this research. So you can find it from there, from the show notes. Thanks a lot, Johnny. It was a really interesting conversation. Um, so let us know how people can follow this conversation with you or find more about information, all the work you're doing. Thanks so much, Oscar. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. I'm so glad to be back. I really appreciate the work that you're doing with this podcast, having very interesting and insightful conversations. For people who would like to continue the conversation with us, you can find us at diacc.ca. That's our website. 
And then we do a lot of sharing and conversations in our LinkedIn group, which you can find us at the Digital ID and Authentication Council of Canada in our LinkedIn group, which is quite active. So we'd love to connect with you and continue the discussion from today. Okay, fantastic. Again, thanks a lot, Johnny, and all the best. Thanks, Oscar. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk About Digital Identity, produced by UbiSecure. Stay up to date with episode at ubisecure.com slash podcast or join us on Twitter at ubisecure and use the hashtag LTADI. Until next time, 